The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Coming up on the Mike Wise Show, a special edition we're calling The Influencers. We'll hear from some of the biggest names in basketball media, sharing stories about memorable people, the current state of the game, and we'll hear some of the great takes that make all of them so influential. But first, Darlene, do your Thanksgiving weekend thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? For those of us that cover the sport of basketball, everyone wants to get a scoop or land a big interview. But along with the competitive nature of journalists, there develops a camaraderie over the years that leads to some very sweet memories. J.A. Adande covered the league for years with ESPN, the LA Times, and the Washington Post. And one of our favorite stories concerned a road trip during the 1996 NBA Finals between the Bulls and the Sonics. One of my favorite memories, by the way, Jay Adani, before we get into <laughs> the uh, the news of the day and the NBA and, and whatnot, is um, I I remember going to Portland one year and 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 Frank Isola of the New York Daily News, we were I think it was some playoff game for something, and and he said to me, hey, um, look. Uh, you can get some Nike discounts at this at this Beaverton store, and um, it's the employee store, but they give riders discounts. I'm like, really? And all of a sudden, I, I guess a lot of riders were at the uh, either the Western Conference Finals or whatever that year. Adande and I think it was Michael Wilbon rented a van and and basically packed it up with sports riders, and they cleaned up. Like they walked in there like oh, they yeah, were that, the that athletes. Was from Seattle during the finals. Yeah, that was the '96 Bulls. Sonic That's right, finals. 96 and Bulls. <laughs> so the funny thing, so there were there were two off days between like game three and four, I think. We're, we're out there in Seattle, and um, you know, Bulls were up like three nothing, so it's really no news. So we go on the first day of, of the press conferences, and uh, so we wrote one story, and then we all we got up early the next day and filed our stories, and we were going to skip out, and play hooky on on the media availability, because what were they going to say? Nothing had changed. But, you know, yeah, between the, the previous day sweep. and that day, right? The, the there was no sweep. news, right? We all thought the Bulls were going to sweep. So the, our editors got a little suspicious because we filed our stories at like 9 a.m. Eastern time, <laughs> 6 o'clock Pacific. <laughs> you know, right. like, what are these guys up to? <laughs> and, yeah, we hopped in the van and drove down, I guess it's like two and a half hours or something, down the coast to uh, to Beaverton and hit up the employee store and did damage. That was my that was my second time going. I, I went after the Final Four the year before. No, this was, this was incredible. This was sort of um, – really pretty big internet maybe the cell phones were pretty big at the time and i just remember people calling from the aisles and basically saying uh john john what, what do you want for your birthday cole hans okay uh, don't worry we got it and it was like we were the athletes for one day i look at it in hindsight and i go oh my gosh like we we broke every rule of etiquette and professionalism a conflict of interest. Do you look? Do you look at it now that you're you're basically director of sports journalism at Northwestern and think to yourself, oh, you know, how can I tell my students not to take a, a freebie now and then? When we do, we got these but incredible it, but it discounts. But it wasn't free. 
it wasn't. But it was we like we got. Like, come on, we got like we were paying. We were paying fifty dollars for like three hundred dollars shoes. You, you got the NCAA mentality where they're like, oh, you can't have special benefits. Like, there's a difference between <laughs> getting free stuff and having special benefits, right? Like, if you're going to turn down the the Nike employee store discounts, then what? Were you not going to sit courtside with the, the seats that they gave you with your press pass back then when when we were sitting courtside? Uh, so you know, there's a difference between awesome. special benefits. And free stuff. <laughs> no, I, I don't think we would. I don't think we, we, as swag goes, we didn't go out on a limb. But I'm telling you that that was I think I did Christmas shopping there that year. And I thought, how oh, am I yeah. going to kill Phil Knight in a column, how he's corrupting our young men? <laughs> Nike makes nearly all of its shoes in Asia. And that part of the world, specifically China, has been very much in the news. When Rockets general manager Daryl Morey sent out a tweet in support of the protesters in Hong Kong who were upset with China's repressive actions, all hell broke loose with NBA events in China being canceled and a lot of business being disrupted. The NBA has been doing business with China for almost 30 years, and Harvey Ayrton, who spent decades with the New York Times, has closely observed the relationship between the league and the country, and I asked him to share his perspective on it. You, you've seen all this stuff from afar. One of the reasons I brought you on today is because I remember, shoot, even before I got to be colleagues with you at the New York Times, you were writing about the the changing of the guard in the NBA, how they how David Stern had really embraced the international game. And I know sometimes you would you not take an umbrage with him, but sort of like, okay, let's be careful about worrying about selling t-shirts in China and not paying attention to the domestic product at home. I almost feel like they had the balance, and then this this time bomb went off from the Daryl Morey tweet, and it's still reverberating. Uh, just your thoughts off the top. Well, I thought one of the, uh, the things that jumped out at me, um, and I do recall reading the piece when he wrote it, I guess it was sometime around 06, 07, the, the Jack McCallum piece in Sports Illustrated where he, I guess it was a piece on Stern and he, he went on a couple of, he went on trips with them and I guess they were country hopping and as part of this globalization. And uh, he interviewed David and uh, David, you know, he asked him specifically about the whole uh, expansion and all these deals that were, were being made in China and David being, um, you know, a, a progressive and uh, probably the only uh, uh, team, major team sport commissioner in the uh, in the in the U.S. who was actually a, a contributor to the Democratic Party and a supporter of Barack Obama. Um, he, you know, he said, you know, I do have reservations about kind of what we're getting ourselves into. And then, you know, he kind of sighed and he said, but, you know, at the end of the day, my job is to make money for the owners. And, you know, it kind of distills the entire story into that one quote um, that, you know, they kind of knew that there are compromises to be made and, and um, you know, uh, potential sacrifices or, you know, of uh, their values. Uh, of their supposed values, I should say, but you know the money and the market, like as with so many other American companies, is you know China is irresistible given the the depth, the, the sheer number of people, and how quickly that country has raised its standard of living. 
and, and, and in doing so, in trying to kind of have it both ways, you know, a repressive political system that, that, that squashes all dissent, but at the same time opening itself up to all the Western commodities, the NBA among them, because the sport for a very long time, before the NBA's globalization, uh, the NBA has been, you know, basketball has been hugely popular in China. Uh, you know, as we saw when we were there in 2008 for the Olympics. Yeah. Um, no. And, um, you know, that night at the, at the basketball arena, when uh, it was Yao Ming's glory, uh, 20,000 people, uh, it felt like, you know, the night that, that, that night in that arena felt like any playoff night in North America. You know, given the, the the familiarity and the passion for the game, mm. uh, so you know the fact that this time bomb went off shouldn't really be surprising, you know, to a lot of people. Now, how the NBA handled it and all that's gone on since, you know, provides Sorry. you know this is what makes sports, in my mind, and sports journalism, uh, so attractive to people like us through the years, the decades now. Uh, is that you know when you least expect it, or you know, you know when you're not, when you're focused on the game itself or whatever, all of a sudden you get dragged into the real world. The real world certainly reared its ugly head when LeBron James used social media to criticize Maury. LeBron and his Lakers teammates were in China during the controversy, and he felt the timing of Maury's tweet caused difficulties for the Lakers and others in the country at the time. LeBron has become one of the foremost social justice warriors in the league, and some people felt he was wrong to criticize Maury when Maury was supporting people being repressed by their communist neighbor. If there is one media member who goes way back with LeBron, it's Chris Broussard of Fox Sports, who was at ESPN the magazine for many years. Chris and I discussed how his relationship with LeBron began back in Akron, Ohio, and took many twists and turns over the years. This is the story that a lot of people don't know about you is... Um, your your family moved to you, you ended up in Akron. And when people say a certain athlete brought them along, I know Brian Windhorse gets it all the time. Right. Like if there was no LeBron, you'd just be, you know, bagging groceries at a piggly wiggly. Like, no, he no right. he wouldn't. No, he wouldn't. But but I, you know, I think just like shoot, I wrote a book with Shaquille O'Neal. Um, I, I think that there's certain athletes for whatever reason, proximity or you gravitate toward. Um, you become part of their world in a weird way. You were in the same town as LeBron. What would what is your first memory of him? When did you first meet him? You know, it's interesting because, as you said, I worked at the Akron Beacon Journal, and even before at the Beacon Journal, I was at the Plain Dealer, but covering the Akron area high schools for for the Plain Dealer. So I was really covering Akron high schools from ninety maybe 1991 until about 1995 when they put me on the Cleveland Cavaliers beat. So I, I bet, cause I, I became, I was good friends with a guy who was one of LeBron's mentors. And yeah. He was no, no, I know the guy you, you know introduced. Chris Dennis. Yeah. Chris Dennis has become yeah. like the source of all sources. <laughs> right. <laughs> he, that's right. I introduced you to him for story yeah. in the New York times. So we were friends because he used to work with some of the Cavaliers players like Bobby Sills and Terrell Brandon mm -hmm. on different events. So I got to know him when I was covering the cast. And he would host summer events, summer tournaments, three-on-three -three tournaments, dunk contests. 
and stuff in parks in Akron. So I bet that I saw LeBron play in one of those as a little kid. I mean, and not, and maybe not even saw him play, but that LeBron was probably out at one of those somewhere. And, you know, when I was just there reporting or watching it. Mm-hmm. So that would be a first thing that may be a connection. But then Chris Dennis told me when I went to the New York times, uh, when LeBron was in the eighth grade, he told me, he said, Hey man, we got the next, the next guy, the next Jordan. Uh, and he told me, you know, LeBron James. And, and of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, right. You know, like Ohio's been a football state. It hasn't been this terrific basketball state. Um, so I'm thinking, uh, I, I, I doubt it, but, hey, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll entertain this. And, yeah, okay, he's going to be great. And he was telling me how he was on the national level in the AAU games. He was just dominating. And even if their team lost, he was still dominant. And so, um, obviously, as a couple couple years from then, LeBron became this national figure. And the way that I got into a good relationship with LeBron was that there was a – before I went to ESPN, the magazine, so I'm still at the New York Times, mm. he, the magazine wrote an article about LeBron. He was on the cover. You probably remember the cover where he had a do-rag on, and it was a side shot of him. Mm-hmm. But the article was somewhat – it painted his mom in kind of a negative light. Uh, and it even mentioned that, like, LeBron had smoked weed and, and stuff like that, if I remember correctly. So it, LeBron hated the article. And oh, there, was, vowed, this the Tom, was this the Tom Friend piece? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because yes. we were out there at the exact same time. Really? Um, yes. When you we did were the out piece there. for the Times? Yes, and I did the piece for the Times. And – um, I remember is, you know, I just I, I I felt sorry for Gloria more than anything. I knew that she I knew that she had a drug problem. I knew right. that she, I, I couldn't tell whether she was on it or not, but I knew she was she was very jittery and unsure. And as you know, I mean, he was he, he was the primary caretaker of himself until Frankie and those guys, Frankie Walker and those right. guys got involved. And so so I, I kind of I never. I had a hard time going after her in any way uh, other than, other than, you know, she's man, you know, LeBron had to raise right. himself because she's got a lot of issues and Tom and friend. Look, I, I know him. I don't even know if he works for ESPN anymore. I just feel like, yeah, he went overboard there and he was angry that I was getting any time with the family and them. But, but the bottom line Maybe is that's why he, but you're right. He, he, I mean, he went hard at her. Yeah, he I'm did. Sure he did. Remember. But the co- the coolest thing we did was we went out to see him play some, some sorry ass bunch of uh, you know white kids from some suburban school at a little gym, <laughs> and and LeBron broke the rim on a dunk, and they had to cancel the whole tournament. And so really, and the mom wa- and Gloria wanted the rim. Well, she was going to sue him if she didn't get the rim. She said she was going <laughs> to sue the school. It was, but it was. The, I, I got to think it's the first rim that LeBron broke, and I was there, and I always reminded of it, and, and friend was there too, and sort of, and even then. But anyway, we go into don't mention friend's name to him. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> but any, but anyway, he, you know, he didn't like that piece, and so, and obviously, you were at the the magazine at the time, or, or you were going to. Well, be. I was at, yeah, I was at the time. So what yeah. happened was he, he had, he had, he had, uh, what's the word? He had um, basically had cut off his relationship with ESP in the magazine. Yeah, and to some degree, the ESP to some degree. So he was not doing anything with ESPN for a couple of years. 
And so I, his, uh, you know, again, I was tight with Chris Dennis. Yeah. And so LeBron had hired a PR guy who, who we got from Jay-Z, from Rockefeller and all that. Hmm. And so I met the PR guy was like, look, we want to improve this relationship with ESPN. We can't, you know, you just, you got to have a relationship with ESPN and this isn't good and all that. And so Chris Dennis told him, look, there's a guy I know just went to ESPN, the magazine, Chris Broussard, you know, you could trust him, blah, blah, blah. He's covered Dakar area. And so I met with Keith. He and I hit it off. We had a couple of lunches together. We hit it off. And he liked me, and then he he so he set up our first the first article in maybe two or three years between ESPN the magazine and LeBron James. Mm. And if you remember, it was about what we did was remember the movie Glory Road. Yes, right. So LeBron was really into that whole story about the first all black starting five Texas Western that won the national championship. And so we did a story where I watched the movie with LeBron and then we I did a, a I like moderated a discussion between LeBron Pat Riley who played in that game for Kentucky um and then some of the guys that played Texas Western uh Louis Dampier who was also on Kentucky was there and David Latin I think was his name and played for Texas Western so it so that was the story and it was told I wrote it in the first person so like in LeBron's voice and so from there, you know, I got to know LeBron. You know how a magazine piece, Mike, you know, you get to spend so much time with a guy. And that's how you really well, you, you, well, you use Well, you used to. Right, right, right. But yeah, but you, you but yeah, you're right. You, and so that's how you. So that's, that's how, how you developed uh, the relationship. Yeah. And I probably did six, six. I probably did six uh, cover stories on him for wow. ESPN the magazine. So, so we can blame you. So we can blame you for the miracle mile or whatever, the magnificent mile that he got into business with ABC for. You, we can blame you for all the business that LeBron has got into with Disney now. Hey, you, you can throw it on me. You can throw it on me. Uh, but I tell great. you what, you mentioned just quickly. You mentioned like you know his upbringing and, and yeah. all that. It, it, it look, I, he's not perfect, obviously. But it's amazing to come from the challenges he faced that he's become what he has, not just as obviously as a basketball player, but the stuff he's done off the court and his business savvy and stuff, oh. it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Like if you thought, you know, everybody, all the players like to talk like they're from the hood and stuff. Yeah. And if you had to pick which players you really think are from the hood, he would not be, because he's so polished and stuff, you would think, you wouldn't think him – but he's yeah. had he had a tougher upbringing than probably ninety nine percent of the players in the league. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, it, no. When you when you hear the stories and when you, it's funny how he's gotten so big now. People really forget where he came from and right. And having driven, you know, having Chris Dennis driven me by the the, the apartment complex on the hill where he and his mom lived for a while before, you know, he his mom basically gave him up for a while where she tried to fix herself. I mean, he, you know, it's it's amazing. And I, I'm blown away too. The guy's probably one, if not the most recognizable athlete in the world. He's got to be, you know, one, two, or three. Right. Um, and you're, where, where do you think he is now in his head? I mean, part, this is my amateur psychology about LeBron right now. Is that he went through such a uh, a year last year, a, a devastating year career-wise. 
that it almost entrenched the fact that he's famous for basketball. All this comes from basketball. And if his legacy is going to be complete, if he doesn't, he's got to win another title or he's got to get to that elite place again with his team. And however long he's got left, while while the, the entertainment world, the charitable world, the social con- the socially conscious athlete world is all out there waiting for him and part of him now that he knows down deep he's got he's got to get a, a squad that wins another to be looked at as he was before. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I do think when LeBron went to LA that he felt like and he even said it and then he kind of backtracked after he caught heat. But remember he said last year, I don't have anything to prove. And I think he went to L.A. feeling like, look, I've won my three rings. I got my MVPs. I dominated the East. I'm recognized as the best player in the world. If I win, yeah, of course I want to win in L.A. I'm going to try my best. But if I don't, you know, it's all good. I mean, I'm LeBron James. Everybody knows what I've done. And then last year, as you said, I mean, the – I don't think he understood. And I said this before he went to L.A. I said, look, LeBron better understand. If you go to the Lakers, they're not going to be happy getting to the second round. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be happy with you just gracing them with your presence. They're not going to be happy getting to the finals and losing. You have to win titles because everybody on that, in that franchise's history, other than Elgin Baylor, who was at your level or close, Jerry West, Wilt Chamberlain, Shaq, Kareem, Magic, Kobe, they all won championships, at least one. And if you go there as the great LeBron James and you don't, it will be a knock against you. And I don't think he understood that. I don't think he believed it. And I think when he, you know, I mean, it's funny, Mike. I believe Kobe Bryant's stature, now the Bleacher Report rankings notwithstanding, um, <laughs> but I believe <laughs> Kobe Bryant's stature actually increased last year because of LeBron's struggles. Like, people looked at it like, mm. wow, I mean, Kobe was, you know, LeBron doesn't look as good as, yeah. as Kobe was looking. And he had you know what? You're star. right. You, you know what I call this? The Bush, of, I mean, the Trump effect. You know, look, George Bush was the most hated man in right. America until Donald <laughs> Trump came along. All of a sudden, oh, George Bush, right. W wasn't that bad. That's a great point. I, I agree with you totally, too. You're right. Um, but, yeah, so I think, you know, I mean, he got booed at times. I mean, people are comparing him to Kobe endlessly. There are a lot of Lakers fans that aren't feeling LeBron, uh, the way things happened last year. A lot of people didn't like it. So I do think now he understands the gravity of the decision he made and that, look, I need to deliver on the court. LeBron certainly has the Lakers off to a hot start this season. He's a quick learner, and he clearly understands the culture of Lakers Nation. While Chris Broussard knew LeBron before he became a household name, Mark Stein of the New York Times built a long-term relationship with one of the men who defeated LeBron in the NBA Finals, and he traveled all the way to Europe to do it. 2011, that to me, and, and I know you had developed a relationship with him over the years, that was a special championship to witness because, one, you really liked some of the people involved, but two, it, that was the year to get LeBron. Like they were not quite there yet. He was still having a confidence a meltdown in the, in the, in the crucible of his career. And it was, and Dirk just like, I mean, I don't think people remember. 
Dirk's finger was messed up in that series. I thought they were done after like game two or something. And uh, and for them to come back and win that, I don't know, that must have been one of your most satisfying finals to cover. Well, he's, you know, he's someone obviously that I covered literally from his very first dribble in the NBA. And honestly, even before that, you know, he was drafted. The Mavs acquired Nash and Nowitzki on the same day in 98. Then there was a lockout and Dirk stayed in Germany. And I actually went to Germany to watch him play for his hometown club team before he even got to Dallas. So when you, cover someone that, when you cover someone that long, and look, you, you know this. I know you've done it in your career on various stories. When you go to someone's hometown and go all the way to the roots of where their career started, it just it changes your perspective on that player. It changes your relationship with the subject. So obviously there's no one probably in my life that I will cover from closer range than Nowitzki. But yeah, I mean, that, that team, like you said, you know, in my time covering the league, you know, I felt like the 90, the first Rockets championship was a team and mm. a lot of very good role players. I think that's what the Mavericks were in 2011. The Pistons, you know, they, they were, you know, maybe they didn't have a superstar per se, but man, they're, you know, their their top five or six players were really, really good. And I think the same thing with the Raptors, you know, there's, there's Kawhi obviously on his own planet, but Lowry's an all-star. Gasol's a pretty recent all-star. They're, they're a much, they're a much better group than advertised. They're, they're way better than we thought even when the finals started. I, I, I agree. And the, I don't know. I was jealous because Dirk Nowitzki is from my mother's hometown, Würzburg, and I um, and I'd been there many times. And I remember seeing your reports from over there. And I think Rick Bucher went over eventually as well. And I always thought, you know, if you're going to go to Germany and you're going to uh, meet a guy's family and everything else, and he just he never had any big time about him too. I just I, I think oh, Dirk no, is first, one of the most time. most solid people I've ever met. When I went there. He, I mean, just to show you just how sheltered a life he had lived to that point. So he is 19. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's, let's go eat. Let's go somewhere and eat. He didn't have a favorite restaurant. We, <laughs> drove, around, we drove around in his Volkswagen Golf for like 45 minutes. Wait, wait, he's 6'11", 7 feet. How does, he, how does he drive a Volkswagen Golf? That's all he had. That's wow. what he had. And... And uh, we drove around for a good 45 minutes until he finally remembered the restaurant that they took the Nelsons when they made their trip to go to, <laughs> to Wurzburg and convinced his parents to let him come straight to the NBA. So we yeah. ended up at that, at that same restaurant. And then I said, okay, I'm here. I need to talk to your parents. And the parents didn't want to talk to me either. So uh, <laughs> luckily, luckily I talked him into it, but that was a, uh, yeah. That was an in, that was an interesting tip off to covering Dirk Nowitzki. Dirk is one of many NBA players universally respected by fans and media because he always conducted himself professionally on and off the court. Dirk played his entire career with the Dallas Mavericks, but many other superstar players switched teams, and they took considerable heat for doing that. But Jay Dante has a problem with it. And the villains are like, okay, we were mad at LeBron because he went on TV to announce his free agency. <laughs> we, were, we were mad at Kevin Durant because he chose to go from Oklahoma City to the Bay Area. Well, he and, also had you know, five play on a good team. Like, but, but, okay, but, like, are, are those that reason to be upset at people? You know, no. like, you know, but like both LeBron and Durant, like, they they haven't had a whiff of trouble, right? Like, no. I think LeBron might have had a, a 
moving violation in his car like when he was in high school that's the right. closest any type of police involvement he's had you know and um you know durant you know has been very clean no no trouble with the law or anything like that and and so we get mad at these guys just because they they exercise their right to free agency you know but yeah. it, it shows you that you know the league is in a good place and that we almost have to manufacture the bad guys and i i do think you need bad guys and i think you need characters and heroes and villains and conflict and drama all that it makes it more compelling um and and one thing we're losing too is rivalries you know so um you know with the team change so obviously yeah. golden state and and cleveland was the modern day lakers and the celtics right but always meeting in the finals but that's over because lebron left so we only had four years of that rather than a decade of that like we did in the 60s yeah i know i you you speak the truth on all this uh, jay donnie is my guest um he's uh, thoughtful on many issues um, I, I want to go just to play with this a little bit before before we knock it off. And, and it's um, because you've written very uh, thoughtfully and with a lot of conviction on many uh, issues near and dear to my heart, including the what I call the renaissance of social conscience among athletes. The, um, I don't want to say I, I remember Larry Bird and Billy Hunter almost at the same time had quotes saying, the league needs another American-born white superstar to really take off. And it's not because it's racist. It's just because people want to see people that look like them and are from them, their area, the, the season ticket buyers. And I'm not saying that every NBA star has crossed over to um, not a black guy, just a ball player. But I, I do feel like, we, you know, they're the, the, the greatest whatever white star I can think of that's from America now, I mean – J.J. Reddick, Kevin Love, maybe uh, uh, Gordon Hayward. I mean, I don't think – and those guys aren't even, like, in the top 15 players. So I guess what yeah. I'm getting at getting at is do we even need – have we gone I'm – not, I'm not saying the, the, that anything in America is post-racial. That's the worst term of all. But are we past the notion that we need an American-born white superstar for, for the NBA to thrive the way it did in the Bird Magic, Michael days? Um, I, I think I think we bought into these guys so much that it doesn't matter. I think Larry Bird's greatest legacy is that we don't need another Larry Bird right now. We absolutely ah, needed good. him in the 1980s. Absolutely, that you know it, it's funny. People say magic, and and I've I, I bought into that too. And I came up with that, and you know I was raised on that Lakers Celtics rivalry, Magic and Bird, and it was always Magic and Bird, Magic and Bird. And really, the more I think about it. You needed Bird, right? If if it was Magic versus Jordan, I don't think you would have had the success that the NBA enjoyed in the '80s and the foundation that was laid for today. If if it had been two two African American players, but the fact mm. that Larry Bird was white, American born, was you know multiple MVP and a champion, the league needed that at that time. Former Celtics coach Rick Pitino once famously said, "Larry Bird isn't walking through that door." when his team was floundering. But as J.A. said, Bird was there when the NBA needed him. Jason Whitlock of Fox Sports is always there when I need him, and he is never at a loss for words or opinions. When we were discussing coaches who speak up for non-basketball causes, I asked him why NFL coaches rarely speak about social causes, and he is happy that they mostly shut up and coach. Do you have one coach that will talk like Popovich or Steve Kerr? Thank, God, thank, you... God, yeah, thank God we don't. 
Thank God the NFL why? doesn't. Why? Why? Because why? Pop why? Why? and Kerr aren't qualified, Mike. They're damn gym teachers trying to run into the history class and tell everybody what they should be doing in history. They're, they're just as... They're just as qualified as you and I to speak about social justice, and, and which we're not that qualified, Mike. All right. Well, but I said point. you still have your views, and I still have my views about it. So why wouldn't they be able to? I have no problem with those guys speak. I don't look at them as I know you I don't. don't. Look at them as, I don't look at them as, I don't look at them as Cornell West and and uh, Todd Boyd, but I certainly will listen to them uh, because. They, they them perform are. for them to virtue signal for them to put on. It's uh, a slogan. It's a gimmick. I don't. You think so? You don't think there's conviction? They're just trying to basically um, ingratiate themselves to their black players. Absolutely, that's the wow. number one priority. Wow, I, 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 I'd reject that. I mean, come on. I know. A guy can't have a conviction. A guy can't have a conviction about something. It has to be for a reason. Yeah, Mike, because li- li- trust me, Mike, me for let, let, me ask you, let me ask you, as much as you love Pop and Kerr for all that left-wing bullshit they spew, <laughs> if one of these coaches or one of these players, black or white, came out and argued the other side, they would be crucified. It takes no courage to do what Pop and Kerr are doing, none. They get celebrated and applauded, and you all pretend like, oh, my God. These guys are so that. courageous. They, they, they get killed. They, 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 they get killed they by their own fan bases. Are you kidding me, Mike? They get killed by fan bases and the other people that oh, are more stop conservative. It. They just got killed by you. You're a pretty big voice in the media. They get killed by – who's that other whack? One guy. From uh, Clay Travis. Yeah, One guy. One right. guy. Come on, Mike. You're, you're not – I, I – look – well, here's where we agree. If you're good, if if we're going to celebrate somebody saying the the president is a you know a white supremacist, we mm-hmm. also have to we also have to be at least tolerant, if not accepting, of athletes and coaches who come out on the other side. Kurt Schilling which might be a little do, bit rash, but which but none I, do, and and I'm glad they don't. To be honest with you, because they all need to stay out of it, not qualified. It's just virtue signaling. You, you, again, you won't see me standing out here screaming anything about politics because, first, I'm not qualified. Yeah. Jason Whitlock is my guest today, hater of Colin Kaepernick, LeBron, every social justice <laughs> minister in the media and in the sports arena. Um, hater of me, really, but it's nice of him. <laughs> my oldest, nearest, and dearest buddy is Frank Isola, who works for The Athletic, Sirius XM Radio, and ESPN. But back in the mid-1990s, we both covered the Knicks. I was with The New York Times, and Frank was with The Daily News. No, it's not a Billy Joel song. While we both enjoyed covering players like Patrick Ewing and coaches like Jeff Van Gundy, there was always a strange vibe between reporters and the upper management of the Knicks franchise. Frank and I, like in a, in a weird way, have a love-hate relationship with the Knicks. We love what the Knicks are to, uh, and to correct me if I'm wrong here, we love what the Knicks are to New York, what people remember from that 73 team, the uh, 70, uh, 69-70 team, we love the whole Willis Reed. We, I mean, shoot, Frank and I had a book just balling, The Chaotic Rise of the New York Knicks. I think our parents bought it. But nonetheless, Walt Frazier and, um, shoot, 
Um, who else showed up at our book party? Walt Frazier and Marv Albert showed up at our book party. Yeah. Two of them, probably the greatest Nick announcer of all time, the greatest announcer of all time, and maybe the greatest Nick of all time, at least in the top three. And so, and and now we got these modern players. We came to really, Frank and I came to really um, not just uh, have affection for, but we really liked some of the players, whether it was Larry Johnson. We, we found a, everybody couldn't stand that Patrick Ewing could, wouldn't talk to them. Well, he would to us. He didn't, he wasn't, a, he had a lot of social anxiety, I think, from his days in college. And now the Knicks have become so bad on so many levels. Um, it's not even the on-the-court stuff. There's so much tone deafness off the court. You've been at the – I left you in 2004. You've basically taken all of the heat, and I still remember the Deadspin article, how Frank Isola became the most hated man at Madison Square Garden. Uh, just explain to people that you don't hate the franchise. You don't hate the, the – you don't want to see them do poorly, but you know you also like – you have a real disconnect between some of the people on top and some of the players you really like and cover. Well, I mean, you know, your job as a reporter is to cover what's happening. So, you know, and unfortunately for the Knicks, the NBA, uh, they keep score during games. And then after the games, they record the results of those games in something called the NBA standings. So I would just say this, since I think 2001, they have the worst record in the NBA. The Knicks fans uh, okay with that? That's I mean, incredible. what else? I mean, you know, all, all you you know, we don't. I always say this all the time. We don't dictate the coverage. The results do, and the results speak for themselves. I would say, you know, when we started covering, which really was '95, I I came aboard '90 November of '95. So from '95 until 2000, or really 2001, the results spoke for themselves. You know, the, the team was very good. The coverage kind of reflected that. Now we did hold them to a high standard now everyone wants to give them you know a medal for being 10 and 37 and that's like some great thing because that'll lead to a, a lottery pick which and then automatically they'll get good so the, the, it's all it, it's the sign of the times and it goes on now on a political level too it's never about the truth it's just about how it impacts you and you know i mean the nick organization doesn't want to hear the truth but the truth is worst record in the nba since 2001 End of story. And I get it. I mean, how many times in the last 18 years we heard, but this time they got it right. This yeah. time they're going to do it. And maybe they will. But that doesn't mean we have to go along with it. Right now, it's just a marketing slogan until it happens. While the Knicks remain a commode fire, the Golden State Warriors were a basketball dynasty between 2015 and 2019, making five trips to the NBA Finals and winning it all three times. But as Mark Stein points out, it could easily have been four titles, if not for major injuries to Kevin Durant and Klay Thompson during the 2019 finals. You know, what happened to the Warriors was unprecedented. The run was unprecedented. We've never seen anything like it in the modern history of this league. A team yeah. that could go to five finals, a team that nearly won four in a row, and then the way it ended with just two horrific, catastrophic Windhurst just kind of started this phrase, and it's a good one. It's a basketball tragedy. Now, it's not a real-life tragedy. <laughs> what happened to Durant and Klay Thompson, those are, those are basketball tra tragedies. We have, we have never seen injuries that severe on the final stage. Obviously, people remember Kyrie went out in 2015, but, you know, it was not a, a long-term catastrophic knee injury that, that ruined him at the time. It, it got worse over time. I mean, and it messed him up with the Celtics, but these two injuries are just 
just brutal. Before we say goodbye, one of our influencers earned a lot of street cred when he got into a Twitter beef with a famous rapper. You probably didn't even have to ask who that was, but yes, it was Frankie Ice. All the people I've had on so far, Jamal Crawford, Garrett Temple, great guests and all, none of them have got into a Twitter beef with uh, Wheezy, Lil Wayne. Uh, <laughs> I, I could not believe this, and and Frank, uh, like Frank's, like as old as he is contemporary. He listens to music. If you don't know him, he's he's a longtime writer at the New York Daily News. Covered the Knicks. Shoot, going back to '94 when uh, when he and I were on the beat together. I was at the New York Times. He's at the New York Daily News. The last few months, he signed with the Athletic, uh, covering the Knicks in the NBA. So all I got to say is. Uh, how does someone that's covered the NBA for 30 years get into a beef with one of the top hip hop artists of all time? <laughs> well, my Twitter beefs so far have been with um, the guy that played McLovin in that movie. <laughs> uh, what was that? What was that called? Super bad. I got into it with him, and now I got into it with Little Wayne. I'm going after the big uh, tough guys. But the Little Wayne thing started because he was on ESPN uh, being interviewed with Odell. Well, Odell Beckham was being interviewed. He was kind of sitting there with him as like his, he almost looked like he was his, his uh, young kid or something like that. So on Around the Horn, a show that I know that you watch every day at five o'clock on ESPN. Yeah, dedicated. I, we were talking about it and all I said was, you know, how does Odell Beckham expect to be taken seriously when he's doing an interview with Lil Wayne sitting next to him? Now I get it. I think Lil Wayne said, how should he be taken seriously? I really wasn't saying that. I was saying that how can Odell Beckham be taken seriously when he needs to bring you know, like a, a prop with him to an interview and start killing the, you know, killing the Giants. And Little Wayne's just sitting there nodding his head to everything that Odell Beckham said. You know, he's nodding in agreement. The funny thing was, what I loved about Little Wayne was that what he said about me was, you know, keep my name out your mouth. He goes, yeah, I know you, Frank. You're Italian guy from New York. I always think that, like, a lot of people that live, like, 150 miles outside of the New York area, all think that anybody with an Italian last name is probably somehow mob connected. So to me, I felt like Lil Wayne was just hedging it a little bit. He didn't want to go over, but I think part of him was thinking maybe this guy is somehow connected. So well, I do want to go back at him, but I'm going to go back at him. I'm going to be polite, so to speak, in my comeback. Fortunately, Frank and Wheezy are at peace with each other. At least we hope so. Thanks for spending time with the influencers, and thanks to all of them for their smoking hot takes. Thanks also to my producer, Bruce Bernstein, for his work on the show, and Ben Wolfen for his editing wizardry. Please check out all of our Pure Hoops Media shows. Each Thursday, we've got Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt. On Fridays, we present the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and my friend Eric Newman. And we'll soon be relaunching Catch and Shoot 2.0 every Wednesday. More info on that in the coming days. And I'm back every Monday with The Mike Wise Show. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, rate us, leave a review, and most of all, enjoy. I hope everyone's Thanksgiving holiday weekend was filled with fun and great food. Till next time, aloha. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.